Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello and welcome. I'm Bill Glasgow from the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm here today with a very special co-host, Jeannie Birch, co-director of our wonderful partner, the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hi, Jeannie. Good morning. How are you? Great to be here. Likewise, great to have you. And our topic at hand for this special briefing is the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, otherwise known as IRA. The law promises to cut prescription drug prices, increase subsidies in the Affordable Care Act, and perhaps more importantly, it provides hundreds of billions of dollars in tax credits, grants, and incentives to encourage sales of electric vehicles and appliances, boost clean energy production, and address climate risks, and by the way, produce a lot of jobs. We'll be talking about that in a few minutes. Along the way, the act may also change the face of the $4 trillion municipal bond market. More about that coming up from our expert panel. But first, a few words about this program. We're coming to you on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. And don't forget to follow the new special briefing podcast, which is now available on Apple, Google, Spotify, or your favorite platform. Two last notes, special briefing is made possible in part by support from the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Advisory Board, and the Century Foundation. And we've taken your questions in advance, and we'll leave plenty of time to get to them in the second half of the program. And now for the main event. From the Penn Wharton budget model, let's welcome Rich Prinzano. He's going to comb out the big numbers in the IRA, the macro perspective. From the National Association of Counties comes Sarah Guimont, who will discuss her terrific new paper on the act, which we'll post after the program is over and is available on our, our websites. From the Blue-Green Alliance comes Ben Geechee, Vice President for Manufacturing, to talk about jobs, especially jobs in clean autos, clean manufacturing. It's very exciting. And from the University of Chicago's Harris School, Professor Justin Marlowe will discuss the impact of the IRA on investment and the muni market. He's got an article coming out in the Government Finance Officers Association shortly on this very subject. Unfortunately, Harris County Commissioner Adrian Garcia had to cancel at the last minute due to a legislative emergency. So with that, let me turn the special briefing mic over to Jeannie Birch to introduce her pen colleague, Rich Prisanzano. Jeannie? Good morning, and we're so pleased to have Rich Frisizzano here today to give us an overview of this amazing act, which has been hailed the most important climate change act in U.S. history. And so he will give us some perceptions of that based on his vast experience, both at Penn and at the U.S. Treasury, where he was there for 13 years working on tax policy. Richard? Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to kind of dive in with this with you guys. You know, it's the IRA here has been a long time coming, so it's nice to see it finally kind of reach fruition. You know, we were working on it with folks and different iterations of it for a little bit over a year, I think, ultimately. And it's nice to kind of get to this, this final part. The act in general, as has kind of been mentioned, is I think does a couple of things. So it, it raises some taxes. It also increases spending. The spending is on things as mentioned is the sort of the climate provisions, you know, the green energy kind of proposals sort of increase those investments and then has the ACA expansion. The tax increases or at least savings. There is an adjustment to how the government treats prescription drugs and, and the sort of negotiations that they would be able to do, which should lower costs to the government as they do that. And then there are some fairly big tax increases. There's a new minimum tax on large corporations. There is you know, an adjustment to how pass-through entities can take losses. And then there, there's a, a tax on repurchases. And ultimately, that leaves about 265, 64 billion in the first 10 years for deficit reduction. That deficit reduction leads to sort of good macro outcomes sort of later, though, though very small. That first 10 years, because there is quite a bit of spending on the side, GDP is reduced by 0.1%. But 
by 2050 where those green energy and those provisions have made things more productive. Again, our models kind of look at things like climate change. And if you abate some of those problems, people get more productive as the air is cleaner and things like that. You see an, an increase in GDP of, of that same 0.1%. You know, along the way, in the sort of the second and third decades beyond the budget window, you see an increased investment as, as there's less crowd out from the paying down of the deficit and debt. So then you end up with more productive workers, more productive investment. That leads again to sort of that increase in GDP, though, though mild in the, in the 2050. The one thing I, I will sort of point out is that the bill is called the Inflation Reduction Act. Our modeling and analysis basically says it has no meaningful effect on inflation, neither increasing nor decreasing. You know, it's just the effects are, are really small. There is some effect on things like prices, but they don't meaningfully affect, you know, the PCE, sort of the definition of what people think of as when they say inflation. So sort of on, on that margin, there's no effect. But again, there are these green policies and there is some debt reduction ultimately. And then I think, you know, the last thing to sort of note here, you know, with the analysis of the bill is just sort of thinking about you know, the Biden administration had clear goals to sort of tax the upper end of the income distribution and, and not have tax increases down the line. There's been a discussion about how corporate taxes affect sort of the average person or sort of those lower in the income. And so we see that there is some effect of an increase in taxes, an average of about $5 on folks low on the income distribution. So that bottom quintile, so it's not zero. But then quite a bit, an average of about $61,000 increase in taxes on those in the 0.1% of the income distribution. And there, you're talking about folks that are making $3.5 million a year or so. So again, I think this bill kind of sticks to that plan or that goal of the Biden administration distributionally. Yeah, and I think that the big thing that we'll see, which I think the other folks will talk about, is, is how cities and states and counties are going to take some of these initiatives and how the tax credits for green, you know, is it the idea here is, of course, to increase investment in things that maybe are cost prohibitive, you know, things like wind farms and solar, kind of increase that and let those municipalities sort of take over on that in the long run. And again, I think that's the idea with the, the spending just being the 10 years rather than than over the full, you know, sort of out to 2050. But yeah, that's sort of the the, the macro outlook from from our perspective and kind of what our analysis saw and I'm kind of excited to see what what other folks are have to say about the bill. Oh thanks Richard. That's really terrific. I see we've misnamed the bill. It should be called something else. But the overall outlook in terms of changing our environment could be very, very exciting, both from the social and the environmental point of view. But let's turn now to Sarah Gamot, who is with the National Association of Counties, where she's the Associate Legislative Director for Environment, Energy, and Land Policy. What do you see, uh, Sarah, happening at the more local level now that we've seen this broader federal impact? Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Sarah Gamot, as Jeannie said, and I serve as the Associate Legislative Director for Environment, Energy, and Land Use at the National Association of Counties, or NACO. First, want to thank you all for um, inviting me here today and for hosting today's conversation. I'm looking forward to the discussion with the other panelists. Just as a bit of background, NACO represents the nation's 3,069 counties, 40,000 county elected officials, and 3.6 million county employees. And I'm really excited to be here to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, given the deep financial and economic expertise on the panel, I'm going to focus more on the county and local government perspective. Local governments play a critical role in responding to climate change and national emissions levels through the deployment of clean energy. Many counties engage and partner with local utilities and energy planning, including utility scale renewables, energy projects, key regulatory issues, grid modernization and storage and energy assurance strategies. You know, among county governments, many responsibilities, environmental stewardship is a primary function, and it's necessary to create healthy, safe, and vibrant communities for county residents. This includes revitalizing contaminated sites to ensure safe and equitable neighborhoods, providing waste and recycling services to minimize pollution, um, and implementing land use and energy policies to promote sustainable communities. Uh, intergovernmental and cross-sector collaboration between federal, state, and local partners is critical to ensuring the development of accessible and affordable clean energy. And the funding provided by the IRA helps to strengthen and further this kind of collaboration from the county perspective. 
Drilling down a little bit more, there are a number of exciting things for counties and other local governments in the IRA. You know, I know we've all heard the figure that the IRA aims to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 40% below 2005 levels by 2030. It looks to do this through a few different mechanisms, and these include direct funding opportunities for counties. These initiatives include making significant investments in climate and environment programs, as well as providing tax incentives to boost the development and the deployment of clean energy. Several of these incentives are now available to local governments under a direct pay option. So that means the counties and other tax exempt entities can elect to receive a payment directly from the federal government in lieu of a credit. And this is really a game changer on a certain level. It opens up new financing possibilities for local governments that couldn't previously access, you know, or really use these credits because of their limited tax or non-existent tax liability. And these opportunities aren't limited to counties, but extend to entities like public utilities and rural electric cooperatives to pursue renewable energy projects on their own without having to rely on outside financing or to invest in projects that might not have been feasible for them before. And I would argue that the direct pay option really puts counties in the driver's seat when it comes to making decisions about their own energy sources, resiliency and sustainability of their communities and participating in the energy transition as a whole. And that extends beyond that direct pay option to the law in its entirety. So beyond supporting counties in their efforts to combat climate change and reduce emissions, the funding provided in the law is really going to be beneficial for community and economic development, areas in which counties play a critical role. Broadly, counties are instrumental in building the economic resilience and vitality of their communities and also in supporting the economic well-being of their residents. More specifically, we're involved in business incentives and retention, as well as workforce development and community revitalization. And the IRA is really going to bring with it opportunities to invest and strengthen workforce development, you know, not only related to installation and maintenance, but also up and down the supply chain. And it's going to help the economic and energy diversification of communities that have historically been reliant on coal or oil or natural gas. And frankly, counties and local governments can be big contributors to the success in advancing some of the IRA's goals, particularly in reaching that 40% reduction in emissions. And that's really, I think, on two levels. You know, first, as Treasury, uh, the Department of Energy, the Environmental Protection Agency began to implement these programs and set up these tax credits, they need to consider how best to position local governments to take advantage of them and fully realize their related benefits. Second, I think it's important to keep in mind that counties have control over land use permitting through zoning and planning laws, and this can cover anything from utility-scale power to even just rooftop solar. So counties and other local governments really hold some of the keys to success here, and counties are excited about it. I would mention that my home county of Arlington, Virginia, uh, just outside D.C., is committed to 100% renewable electricity for county government operations by 2025 and community-wide by 2035 sort of on the other side, Summit County, Colorado, which has a much smaller population than Arlington um, and is much more rural, is committed to reaching 100% renewable electricity by 2035. So counties have a lot of interest and appetite here, but with that, I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. That's a great overview. One of the key functions of economic development is, is not just to have a nice shiny new building or a shiny new factory. It's to put people in those shiny new buildings and provide jobs, jobs for, for cities, counties, states. The Blue Green Alliance, which has very strong ties to a number of public and private labor organizations, as well as the green community, really focuses on this. And we want to welcome Ben Beachy to talk about just that. What's the job payoff from IRA, what kind of industries, what's the role of clean manufacturing and clean energy? It's a very, very intriguing bill, and you're already seeing a lot of action in the auto sector. Yes, we are. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Maybe I'll just start with a, a word about who we are and why this moment matters. So Blue Green Alliance is a coalition of 14 leading union and environmental groups. We came together originally with the premise that the pursuits of good jobs and climate action can and must coexist, not clash. And a few years ago, we put together a platform called uh, Solidarity for Climate Action, which proposed a suite of bold investments across economic sectors that would simultaneously support job creation, clean air, a livable climate, and a greater economic, racial, and environmental justice. 
And the Inflation Reduction Act includes, of course, not all, but many of the investments that we and our allies have been fighting for for years, moving us considerably closer to our climate jobs and justice goals. I would say that the law is the nation's most full-throated embrace to date of an essential truth that addressing climate change requires us to build a clean economy and that growth in the clean economy offers real opportunities to create good jobs and boost economic security, particularly for hard-hit workers and communities. And that support for economic security and equity, it's also critical for the political economy of climate policy change, right? It helps to expand the chorus of workers who see climate action as essential, not only for future generations, but for next month's paycheck. So I would say, After decades in which many policymakers considered industrial policy to be a four-letter word, the Inflation Reduction Act offers a historic course correction by investing in industries that are strategically imperative, not only for a livable climate, but also a thriving and more just economy. So this win-win approach to climate change that we see here is a a rebirth of U.S. industrial policy, and it's, it's long overdue, frankly. One clear way to measure the economic benefits that you alluded to of this law is its potential to create good jobs. I think it's safe to say that there are a few bills this century that have come close to such sweeping potential for good job creation. We asked economists at UMass Amherst's Political Economy Research Institute to quantify the job creation potential from IRA, both overall, by sector, and by each of the more than 100 climate and energy programs in the bill. And the upshot is the bill's climate and energy investments will create more than 9 million good jobs over the next decade. That's an average of nearly 1 million jobs sustained each year over the next decade. That's an unparalleled opportunity for hard-hit workers and communities to reap the economic gains of climate action. Just to break that down a little bit further, now that includes nearly 5 million jobs from clean energy investments, more than 900,000 jobs from programs to build clean manufacturing supply chains, more than 400,000 jobs from investments in electric vehicles and clean transportation, you mentioned autos, More than 900,000 jobs from programs to make our homes and offices more energy efficient, so a lot of efficient buildings investments. 150,000 jobs from investments in environmental justice and climate resilience. And finally, more than 600,000 jobs from investments in our natural infrastructure, including lands and agriculture. You can also slice those numbers by state. Overall, we expect the climate investments in the bill to create more than 210,000 jobs over the next 10 years in Pennsylvania, for example, alone, over 100,000 in Colorado, 170,000 roughly in Michigan, 40,000 in Nevada and beyond. Of course, it's not just job quantity that matters, it's also job quality and job access. And so the bill has good labor standards, and we intend to build on those standards and the regulations to ensure that these jobs, you know, in growing sectors like clean energy, clean manufacturing, efficient buildings, offer workers good wages and benefits. And to advance economic and racial justice, we need tools like registered apprenticeship programs, targeted investments, equitable hiring practices, community benefits agreements, so that we prioritize job access for low-income workers, workers of color, and workers in environmental justice, energy transition, and deindustrialized communities. A lot of that rubber will meet the road in the implementation of the bill. Uh, equity rise or dies on the implementation of these bold investments. Just to say a word before I wrap about one sector, which is clean manufacturing that you named, and I'm happy to get more into this in the Q&A, but the law invests in an unprecedented $50 billion in clean manufacturing. You know, that includes investments to ramp up manufacturing of solar panels, wind turbines, electric vehicle batteries, and other clean technologies, while slashing emissions from aluminum, steel, cement, and other you know, raw ingredients of our built environment. Years from now, I think we'll probably look back on these investments as the moment we started building more reliable, clean manufacturing supply chains uh, so as to equitably create good jobs, instead of hitching our climate goals to production overseas that is often exploitative and more polluting and vulnerable. So I think it's, you know, it's critical that this law includes a very strong focus on the industrial sector 
we frankly cannot address the climate crisis or air pollution without taking aim at industrial emissions. And we cannot build a more equitable, clean economy without onshoring clean manufacturing. To date, few policies have done so, but these new investments aim to fill that gap, which could signal a new industrial era for climate policy. So I'll leave you with that. I think this law could be a game changer for cutting industrial emissions while onshoring clean manufacturing to support good union jobs, climate action, and greater equity. Well, thank you, Ben. I'm going to ask you to hold a couple of thoughts for the Q&A. We don't have to discuss them right this second. Like you mentioned, apprenticeships, which I think is very important. This is a very job short economy right now, or at least it seems that way. We should probably talk about training and what this means for community colleges, colleges, and K-12 systems as well. There's a lot of education perhaps needed. So let's hold that and come back to it. Just a couple of brief notes. This is a reminder that you're tuned into special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. You can find this and all of our past 30-odd sessions on our websites. And remember to download the special briefing podcast, brand new, from your favorite platform. You know, speaking of transformational change, let's welcome Justin Marlowe of the Harris School. Justin has written about the tax credit part of this bill, especially that both Rich and Sarah referred to, and how this may fundamentally change the way municipalities finance new infrastructure, going from municipal bonds, debt, tax-exempt debt, to a tax credit market. Justin, tell us about this and how this all plays out in the financing world. Well, thank you very much, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, thanks, everyone, for organizing this really, really important discussion about what as we've heard several times now, is a really a landmark piece of legislation. So what I'm going to talk about today is set forth in a, in a piece that, as Bill had mentioned, is forthcoming in Government Finance Review, which is the publication of the Government Finance Officers Association coming out in their October issue. So look for it there. It should be in the next day or two. In that column, uh, what I talk about are sort of two, I think, really essential components of what the IRA means for the municipal finance world generally, both at a kind of more specific level, but then also at a potential macro level if we're willing to zoom out a little bit. The first piece, which is, I think, really, really important, has been touched on already here a little bit, which is the idea that we're, a lot of the tax credits that the IRA includes are direct pay credits. So this is providing an opportunity for public sector entities to go out and you know, essentially provide services or provide some sort of a, of a benefit directly then to have the federal government come back with a direct pay option, which of course is not widely used in the municipal bond market, but it's also not completely new to the market. We've had different forms of direct pay at different points in time, and I'll talk about that in a second. And we've also had different types of tax credit bonds available in the municipal bond market, if you're familiar at all with the QZABs, Qualified Zone Academy bonds, and different types of qualified credits. That's a concept that's been in the market for some time now. It's not at nearly the scale as other parts of the media market, but it's definitely in the market. And so when we when we look at the experience with tax credit bonds, what we're doing here is really scaling that experience up in a big way. So the direct pay idea is not new to the market, but we haven't done it at, at quite the scale before. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I think the really essential component of this, though, is the direct pay piece along with the transferability of credits, which is the sort of other component that's sort of tucked away in, in the IRA that has what I would argue is, is even more significant implications for where the municipal finance industry goes from here. So if we, if we play this out, we take the, the transferability of credits along with the direct pay uh, ability for a lot of credits, and we combine those, we can think about a variety of interesting scenarios, right? One would be, you can imagine, for example, a developer goes out and receives tax credits to build, say, a solar farm. There's been some discussion here already about solar farms being one of these sort of chronically difficult investments to make. There's a lot of uncertainty, requires extensive capital up front, and then the payoff at the end is a power purchase contract or some sort of reliable revenue stream that, that's tied to, say, a public utility. So there's a lot of uncertainty there, and so developers have had to get really creative with how to finance those kinds of investments. You can imagine a scenario where a developer receives tax credits to build a solar farm, and then takes those, builds that solar farm and then sells it to say a public pension fund. 
um, or potentially to uh, a local government that has you know, set up some sort of a, a holding company or an LLC or a joint venture that allows it to engage in, in that kind of investment activity. At that point, then the public entity, let's say it's still the pension fund, converts those credits that came from the developer originally into direct pay credits. And so now we have a situation where a public sector entity that could in the past not really benefit from credits because they don't have any tax liability, don't have any tax exposure, have been able to now have those credits transferred to them, they can realize the direct pay benefit. And so through this two-step process, you have the ability for public entities to directly subsidize or at least directly underwrite, particularly the upfront component of big investments in certain kinds of clean energy infrastructure. The added advantage then at that point is you could see a situation where, again, say it's a, a public pension fund, can turn around and lease that same asset, say that same wind farm or solar farm, back to the developer. And at that point, the developer could sell power using and realize different types of credits for power production by selling power than to say a public utility. And so you have, in that case, as a, a developer able to realize different types of credits at different stages in the production process and really leverage that initial investment in a couple different ways, along with leveraging the investment of, say, a local government or a pension fund in a variety of other ways. And so it creates all sorts of interesting and creative opportunities for states and localities and public utilities and pension funds and potentially even nonprofits, foundations, other entities to get directly involved in, uh, as Sarah had mentioned before, kind of charting an energy course for local communities. That's all exciting and certainly has a, a huge impact on the way we think about clean energy. When I think about the potential implications for this beyond the clean energy space and the scope of the IRA as we know it, it naturally raises a question then of, well, what happens if we see a whole range of successful projects, a whole range of successful new assets that are built using this creative kind of financing? At that point, do we then start to ask ourselves, well, what if we expand this beyond clean energy to get into more basic transportation infrastructure or more basic infrastructure around buildings or around any number of other types of projects that we tend to finance in the municipal bond market? And you naturally then have to go to the next step and say, well, what if we say that because of the success of a lot of really high profile projects, it creates some momentum to think about the municipal bond market as not necessarily a tax exempt market the way it's been, but rather a direct pay tax credit type market of the sort that uh, certain advocates in Congress have been trying to push for for a long time. The key point that I try to make in the article is that if we see the kind of success that I think some would like to see with the IRA and this very different style of municipal finance, it may create a lot of momentum to try to shift larger parts of the municipal bond market in that direction. Now, I don't necessarily have an opinion on on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Of course, it depends on the specific types of projects and the specific market circumstances. But one of the concerns, of course, that comes up is that anytime we have direct pay, we then have to be concerned about whether Congress is willing to continue to appropriate the support for that direct pay option. And if you're familiar at all with the Build America Bonds program, which was our experiment with direct pay credits back during the immediate aftermath or in the middle of and in the immediate aftermath of the 2008-2009 financial crisis, one of the criticisms of the Build America Bonds program has been that every time there's a serious discussion about deficit production in Congress, the direct pay payments from Congress are on the chopping block. And there's threat that they'll either be zeroed out. And there was some press earlier this week about that being back on the table potentially. And so it creates a lot of uncertainty as a borrower around whether or not you'll get that direct pay credit from the federal government. And so for a lot of municipalities, the question really is, if we go this route, can we get to critical mass? Can we have enough support? Can we have enough entities using this structure that we don't have to be concerned with the federal government creating the kind of uncertainty that it's created in the past? And so there's a very good chance that with the IRA and with the success that it might have, that it could reach that kind of critical mass. And that would mean some uh, potentially really major shifts in the way that we think about uh, borrowing and municipal bonds and, and the role of municipal bonds and financing not just clean energy infrastructure investments, but infrastructure investments more generally. So it's an interesting time to be in this space and I look forward to hearing uh, more of the conversation. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, Justin. We're gonna move on to Q&A. So uh, panelists, if you wouldn't mind unmuting yourselves and turning your cameras back on, that would be a, a big help. Jeannie, I know that you've got some points and some questions. You also work with the UN. The C40 was going on around the same time as this program. So you work with, with the UN on sustainability. 
you know, tell us what's on your mind and, and what some of your leading questions are. We were talking earlier about electric trucks and electric school buses and clean energy uh, generation facilities. So let's start the discussion there. Sure. There are a lot of things on my mind. One, in the sort of up in the clouds, but in an aspirational piece of it is basically, this puts us back among the players, the important players in the global arena around the Paris Agreement and in sustainability. We had a bruised nose in those areas before because we didn't take the action that we promised to do when these agreements were made. So I'm very excited about that, that we can be show that democracy can work by its legislative processes to meet the aspirations that the 193 members of the United Nations have said we should be doing. So that's at the highest level. At the next level down, I'm very excited about the transformational and momentum effects of this particular bill. We're going to be able to accelerate the energy transition, which is very exciting through these very various elements. We're going to be able to empower localities, counties, and cities to meet their local goals. They're the ones that are really at the forefront of so much of this. And so that we're now giving them the ability to do what they'd like to do and to do this productively in partnership with the federal government, with the private sector, and so forth. So if this works out, it's really showing that, that we know what we're doing and we can do it well. And lastly, I'm very intrigued by this idea of the redefinition of the muni bond market and how the creativity of the people in this market, which is the leading market in, in the world, can again show what can be done by bringing together in productive partnerships, the public and the private sectors, as well as the non, non-governmental areas, particularly what we have represented in the blue and green group that have been advocating jobs. And so this is a very exciting moment for us. I kind of look at it as if, remember in the 1970s when we passed the Clean Water and Clean Air Acts, that transformed city living, transformed life in America in terms of our environmental contributions to livability. And so I think there's a potential of this in this act, so long as it stays in place, I will not know what will happen with the elections, and that we can successfully execute the various innovative pieces of it. Thanks, Jeannie. And that leads me to a question for Sarah and for Ben. You've mentioned clean water, clean energy. Counties have, have a, a big role in both those areas. And deferred maintenance or lack of investment eventually led Jefferson County in Alabama into bankruptcy over their sewer plant, led uh, the city of Harrisburg to the courthouse door over a county waste to energy plant that was badly run and in financial trouble. This seemed to have a tremendous opportunity for a lot of the basic services that, that counties run but can't necessarily afford to fix up. Yes, as I think we've all said today, this is a really transformational opportunity for municipalities, for counties in particular, who are responsible for a lot of different functions and and don't always have easy access to capital funding. You know, I think it's really going to be great that the new direct pay option will be transformational for local governments, for public utilities, for entities like rural electric cooperatives to pursue these projects on their own without having to rely on outside financing. So if you're looking at sort of the some of the bigger projects, if you're talking about like nuclear or, or hydrogen, those are things counties wouldn't really be looking at doing on their own, but those are areas where they can contribute now. But if you're looking at projects like a waste to energy facility, like I know Hennepin County in Minnesota is, this is an enormous amount of new funding to open up a project they really can't do without it. So I think as other clean energy developments like that are popping up, this will really let counties and and other municipalities have a little more of a say and control over where energy projects are being cited, how the projects are structured and carried out because they can financially contribute, putting them on a more uh, level playing field with private developers. And for smaller scale projects as well, local governments are already leading the way in this and, and that will be really putting them in the driver's seat here for local governments that are really the closest to the community that they serve. Just a, a follow-up question on, on that. I realize that the re- regulations for this, this act are, are still a work in progress, but just looking looking at your write-up, looking at other analyses of the, the act, there's a ton of federal agencies involved here. It's not like the IRA Department of Treasury. So how do local governments and states, for that matter, number one, get their act together and, and decide how to structure a deal and apply for it, what kind of help do they need? And a lot of these grants may be based on 
population, but they're competitive grants. You know, tell us about the groundwork that's needed to take advantage of this law. Sure. You know, so putting aside the direct pay option for a minute, looking at all the competitive grant programs in the IRA, whether they're at EPA, at DOE, uh, DOI, it can be difficult, I think, for counties and for local governments. I think states are a bit different, but to, you know, figure out the different funding opportunities and avenues available to them to make sure that they have all the pieces of a project in place before even beginning to fill out a grant application. And a lot of these investments are targeted at disadvantaged, underserved communities. So I think that the federal government here has a responsibility to reach out to those communities to make the grant application uh, as simple as possible to make sure that they are supported to provide technical assistance, not only when they are you know, seeking out opportunities. I, I don't know if you've looked at grants.gov recently, but it's difficult to navigate, especially if you don't have a lawyer on staff. Counties are still dealing with the fallout of the pandemic and, and have low staffing levels are concentrated on, on other things and, and, you know, picking up recycling, picking up the trash and they don't have time to sort of shift through a whole bunch of FOAs or, or NOFOs. So I think there's a responsibility here from the federal agencies, you know, most relevant to the IRA to reach out to communities across the country, make them aware of the opportunities and help them actually go after them and sort of help them think about the different projects, staffing levels, environmental reviews, anything like that. And you know, that's something that NACO does, but at the same time, I would argue that that's also really the federal government's responsibility as well. But you know what? There's room for a partnership with academic institutions. I'm just thinking of uh, business law, architecture planning schools who all have clinics. Mm -hmm. And now's the time for them, for us, I'll put it that way, to uh, gear up, to help with uh, workshops and training and so forth. Wondering what uh, Justin thinks about that. Yeah, I think I think those are all excellent points that Sarah makes. And one of the things that's been interesting to hear kind of related to this too, uh, academic institutions and, and all sorts of other nonprofits, NGOs, could play a role in just helping local governments understand the landscape and all the new complexity. But one thing that has been interesting to see too is I've had some conversations with you know bond lawyers who are saying that one of the things that this will sort of force them to do is de-silo themselves. You know, there's a tendency for the kind of municipal bond lawyers to not really talk to the people who do project financing, to not really talk to the people who are working in the clean energy space through instruments like tax credits and the like. And so what you're seeing are cross-disciplinary teams within the legal profession coming together to provide that kind of support. And that's that's exciting because I think that that could be exactly the kind of help that a lot of, of smaller municipalities and, and counties need just to be able to kind of know what's available and, and how to get moving in this direction. So I think there will be that kind of support that crops up as well. I see maybe a, uh, a University of Pennsylvania Harris School of Local Alliance conference on navigating IRA coming up. Stay tuned on that one. Can I turn for a second to the question I posed earlier? Very ambitious job creation uh, numbers, Ben, and God willing, we'll get there. But what kind of groundwork is needed right now? Everybody's complaining about, I can't find qualified workers. How are we going to train the people to work in clean manufacturing, in the clean auto plant, in the, in the electric auto plant, so, so on and so on, not just on the factory floor, but Everything from the factory floor up to design, architecture, finance, the whole ball of wax. What's needed? Does the act provide money for, for training or, or is, this, uh, is this something we need to be concerned with? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it actually, let me answer it in a way that speaks a little bit to your question about how counties and other entities can be competitive here, right? So the bill is, is a bit Byzantine. There's over 104 programs in the climate and energy space. So as you mentioned, it's going to be a little difficult for different entities to navigate if they're just trying to read the statute. One additional resource that I'll just name that the Blue Green Alliance has produced and just, just rolled out actually is a user guide to the Inflation Reduction Act, where we walk through many, not all, but many of those 104 programs to name who are the eligible entities what kind of grant is it? Is it a you know, formula grant or a competitive grant? Or is it a tax credit? Or is it a loan program? Insofar as it is competitive, what are the criteria that are going to be used right, to determine who gets the bid? And I would just say for those who are looking to be competitive, whether you're, you're a governmental entity like a county or a business or a community organization, the criteria varies depending on which program we're talking about. And much of the criteria has yet to be spelled out as Sarah's naming. A lot of this will ride on implementation. Frankly, the, the history of the bill has not yet been written. 
in, in the sense that you have entirely new multi-billion dollar programs being stood up with just a couple of pages of statute. So many of the rules, the specific rules to determine how the money is going to be allotted has yet to be written. And that's the historic task in front of us right now. Right? We have an opportunity to determine whether or not these nearly $400 billion in investments uh, for climate action, clean air, whether they redress structural injustices or reinforce them. And that's largely up to the task of implementation. It's a boring sounding word for a monumental task. The New Deal, for all of its benefits, was oft critiqued for excluding Black communities, hard-hit workers, and we do not want historians 10 years from now looking back on this bill and saying it was a missed opportunity to chart a path to a, a more equitable economy. This really is our generation-defining moment to reshape the economy. So on those competitive grant programs, if you're a county or other level of government, a business or a community group looking to uh, get access to the funds, having a keen eye towards equity is actually not just the right thing to do, but is also likely to boost the competitive nature of your application, right? It makes you more likely, better positions you to be able to access the funds. And that, I'll just name a couple of dimensions for that. One is, is job quality, right? And you named this uh, bill. So like one of the, your questions easier to answer for the construction sector, because we have a variety of tools available for construction jobs such as registered apprenticeship programs that basically provide an on-ramp for workers to be able to get trained up in the construction jobs. And there's going to be, like I mentioned, millions of construction jobs created as a result of these investments. In addition to registered apprenticeship programs, having prevailing wage programs in place, having a project labor agreement programs in place uh, would also boost the quality of the jobs and thus the competitiveness of uh, applications for funds. Partnership with unions can go a long way, uh, of course, in demonstrating that these jobs will be high-quality jobs for workers, ensuring that they have access to collective bargaining. In terms of equity, being able to show that there's going to be outsized benefits for hard-hit communities, showing that low-income communities, communities of color, communities in, in environmental justice communities, deindustrialized communities, communities facing energy transition, these are all going to be critical communities to prioritize for distribution of these funds. Again, not only is that the right thing to do, but it is also not the strategic thing to do if you're trying to apply for these funds. So showing those outsized benefits, showing that you'll support the Justice 40 initiative of this administration, having specific tools like community benefit agreements or pre-apprenticeship programs are ways to show that you're taking into account access to quality jobs. And then, of course, also showing that you are going to maximize the dollars for emissions reductions, for meeting our climate goals, and also reducing other forms of pollution so as to support clean air and clean water for local communities. So jobs, equity, emissions, these are all going to be, again, determinative of how successful this bill is in reshaping our economy, bending it towards equity, and will be determinative for many applicants and answering the question of whether or not they get the funding. Yeah, so I was just sort of curious when we think about the jobs and we were asked this kind of through our analysis of different things. The one thing that we think about is that if you're thinking about, say, replacing, if it's producing electric vehicles versus gasoline powered vehicles, or if it's oil drilling and you'd rather have wind farms or, or solar farms. So that we always struggle with how to handle is this a job that we're just taking somebody who is working on, say, the dirty energy and moving them to the clean energy? that's really not creating a new job, that's just retraining them for this, this kind of new sector or treatment. And so I was just curious with the research that you, you cited before from UMass, if that number you were sort of talking about was sort of this net number, that there are actually these extra jobs that are created, or if it was just these are jobs in that sector, some of which will be taken by people who are working in the, I'll say for lack of a better term, sort of the dirty sector. Great question. So that is a gross job estimate, not a net job estimate, right? I think the net job estimates would require some heroic assumptions that we, I don't think most modelers are comfortable with. Right. That's, so that's where we come with. So that's, I think the questions we get from policymakers often are, how many new jobs are you creating as opposed to, to just that jobs? And then, you know, we sort of struggle with that. So I'm glad somebody else is openly struggling with it as well. One thing just to name, though, in, in that domain is that there's a number of spots in the legislation where there's an explicit incentive or even requirement to support energy communities, as it's defined, right? So communities that have been historically reliant on, on the production of coal and oil and gas and, and fossil fuels. 
And just to name one, I mentioned clean manufacturing. There's a, a tax credit called the 48C tax credit. And that's $10 billion to support manufacturing of clean technologies from solar to wind to batteries and reductions in industrial emissions. Of that $10 billion, $4 billion is explicitly set aside for communities that have faced coal plant closures or coal mine closures in the last couple of decades. I'm from West Virginia, right? And so, like, you know, this matters. And again, we can't rely on the statute alone. Much will depend on the regulations and the rules that we craft right now. And yet we have a, a good foot in the door to ensure that communities that have been have powered the nation for years and that are facing energy transition are not left behind, but are among those who are at the front of the line for these investments. Well, one thing I wanted to add that we're talking about the short term, the immediate effects of this whole thing. We need to think about the long term training of people as well and energizing the junior college or the community college institutions that we have. In Connecticut, they've had two investments in community college and advanced manufacturing, and they had a very hard time filling those schools with them. So we need a communications policy as well that will talk about the kinds of jobs that will be in this area. That's a very good point. I wanted to raise a uh, muni market question uh, for Justin. Between the tax credits and subsidies and mixtures of tax credits and subsidies, can some of these revenue streams be securitized and, and turned into to bonds? Or is this, as the federal government put limits on this, uh, you know, in a way, it would be nice to have a lot of this money up front and pay for it over the life of a project. Right. My understanding is that a lot of those details that you just described are in that implementation process that Ben was just describing, that a lot of that's going to need to be hashed out in rulemaking. And that'll matter a lot. The degree of flexibility that you're afforded to try to securitize some of these revenue streams will make a big difference, I think, in which local governments are willing to take them up. At the end of the day, the muni market still, even if we have lots of creative ways of thinking about providing the, the federal subsidy, at the end of the day, the muni market investor is still interested in stable, predictable revenue streams. That tends to be the thing that draws them to the market in the first place. And so being able to tell a story about how even a securitized revenue stream is predictable and forecastable and is, behaves more like the things that we typically borrow against in the muni market, like property taxes and sales taxes and the like, I think will make it that much more attractive. But how much flexibility you're afforded in, in the way you leverage it and how the federal subsidy comes into play. I think those are details that are going to need to be hashed out in the not too distant future. Well, let me throw out a jump ball follow-up question. Another tax credit program, the Opportunity Zone program, has not been noted for its transparency. There was a lot of a lot of opacity in how the opportunity zones were selected, how the transactions were carried out, and what the what the results are. Has anybody looked at how transparent the Inflation Reduction Act will be when it comes to financing and building all these these new projects? Well, then there's a there's an opportunity zone right there in oversight. You have so many so many federal departments and agencies involved here, each with their own inspectors general. Plus, if the muni market is involved, you have a whole nother level of disclosure. It's it's very complicated, but we want to make sure that the money is is responsibly spent as well as creatively spent. Yeah, I mean, I think that the opportunity zone, I think one of the issues there was that it was a complicated structure and it was aimed at a certain certain set of people, right? The benefit was going to people that already had things like capital gains invested. And so it was kind of very targeted, which I think right. made it the difficulty and then sort of this like opaqueness to it. I think as, as Ben and other folks have, have mentioned, I think some of the credits here have more of this open, you know, we don't know exactly how it's going to work. You know, these things are going to get worked out through regulations and stuff as the different departments work through stuff. And I think that's one of the appeals here is that there aren't these very strict lines that have to be taken. And again, the opportunity zones ends up, you know, I think most research on it has shown that it it didn't quite accomplish what it wanted and it benefited a certain set of people that maybe are not sympathetic to the average person and, and things like that. Whereas a lot of these in this bill don't do that. I think by design, they left it more open. I'd also bring up the Section 1603 program from the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which was essentially very similar to the direct pay option, but not for local governments. But there was, I believe, a pretty robust reporting requirement associated with that. But that has, you know, has been several years now. I think with the 
tax credits is going to be one thing that Treasury needs to look into a little bit more. But with the grant programs at the more traditional programs at DOE, USDA, uh, EPA, those have a little bit more oversight baked into them just by their nature of being a traditional federal grant program. Great time to be an auditor, I think. <laughs> the one additional layer I would just add here, I think your question about transparency really points back to the importance of implementation, as Richard was just saying, right? I mean, on the day that Dodd-Frank passed uh, Congress, a Wall Street lobbyist was quoted as saying, it's halftime in the fight over financial regulation. Right now, it is halftime in the fight over IRA's investments for a livable climate and a more just economy. And the second half is really shaping those rules. And I think part of making sure that those rules are transparent is bringing in impacted communities right from the get-go, right from the jump, right? And making sure that the communities most hard hit by the, the status quo, the unjust status quo, are right front and center in helping to shape these rules, how it shaping, shape how this money goes out. And that requires democratizing access to the information about what these grants and loan programs are about and how you can access them and making sure uh, local governments, businesses, and community groups are well-equipped to clamor for the funds. That's how we make it not only transparent, but uh, equitable. And we're going to let uh, Ben have the last word because we're just about at the top of the hour. Thank you. Thank you so much, panelists, Rich, Sarah, Ben, and, and Justin. Thanks to Jeannie Birch. And thanks also to the folks behind the mic at the Volcker Alliance, Graham Dowd, Adam Campaglio, and Noah Wynn-Ritzenberg, and at Penn IUR, Diana Lind, Arden Jordan, and Amy Montgomery. Thanks also to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation for helping make special briefing possible. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.